This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. We go versus China in a trade war. Well, maybe not so fast. The Trump administration indicating it is willing to negotiate with uh, China on escalating frictions between the two. But uh, let's get some insight from someone who knows. Stefan Selig is managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, you've been at the negotiating tables when it comes to trade. And in fact, Carol, with some of these very same actors, um, uh, so I looked after most of the negotiations with China. And in fact, in my uh, tenure in the Obama administration, I visited China more than any other country, making five separate trips there and hosting them the same amount of times here. So, Stefan, what does maybe the Trump administration and team have right? What do they have wrong in your view? Well, look, I think they got the diagnosis right, which is um, 17 years ago, China joined the World Trade Organization and the expectation— And we helped them get there. Absolutely. And we helped them get there because we made a bet, and the bet turned out not to be a great one, having nothing to do with what this administration uh, is doing at the moment, which was to say, as they were to get more engaged in the global economy, this would spur further economic reforms. Uh, And frankly, it has been much slower um, than anyone has expected, so that now 17 years later, they've made far less progress to becoming a market economy. So shame on us, shame on them, shame on both. Well, you know, we made a bet. The world made a bet. um, And it turned out um, not to work out exactly as planned. And now the question is, what do we do about it? Because in fact, uh, companies in competitive markets are not playing on a level playing field. And that's hurting U.S. businesses and hurting U.S. workers. So what do we do without creating some kind of cold war, if you will, between China and the United States? Well, one of the things I think we should be doing is working more closely with our allies and not trying to do it all alone, because this is a global problem. And even take the metals tariffs, where for sure China is responsible for most of the overcapacity in the market. That affects the EU and countries around the world just as much as it affects us. And as a result of that, working more closely with our friends and our allies is something I would do for sure. One. Two is I would change the metrics. So this notion, as the president has suggested, that he wants an immediate $100 billion reduction to our tariff, our trade deficit, is in fact, I think, misguided and misplaced because these policies are fundamentally not going to affect our trade deficit, which is controlled much more by economic factors like our savings rate in both of our countries. We should be talking about market access for U.S. companies. and, and make- That's a great point, though, right? We don't say We buy. That's right. And And we've been very happy to say to China, please make everything that we want to buy. And fund our... Deficit. Fund our deficit. Right. Right. So, uh, in fact, these tax cuts that the administration has put in place that have been largely responsible for the increase in our equity markets last year of almost 20 percent are going to have to be paid for by somebody. And that has largely been countries that have saved more than we do. At the top of that list is China, but it also includes Japan. It also includes Gulf countries. And it also includes Germany. Do you fear China a little bit? Because they are certainly long-term thinkers. 
President Xi has really cemented his position now as a leader for who knows how much longer, right? Um, and they've got a plan to dominate industries and, are, and have the money to do so. It's, it's a great question, Carol. And I guess what I would say is I don't fear China at all. Having gone around the world, the United States still has the best companies around the world. And people want to do business here on our shores more than any place else in the world. We have the broadest and deepest capital markets, the best, most technologically innovative economy in the world, the best secondary education system, um, the best natural resources. I mean, we have so many things going for us. What I actually do fear mm -hmm. is actually this administration making a mistake um, that puts us in a disadvantaged position, much more than I fear China. Um, what's your biggest concern, that the mistake that they're going to make? Well, it's, un it's unintended consequences and collateral damage. So what does this do to our relationship with our allies and friends, one? What is Europe, China going to do to— the right now is trading a ton with China. Totally. And what is it going to do um, uh, in terms of what China's um, retaliatory measures are going to be? Yeah. What is the impact going to be in our economy? You know, the world is now permanently interconnected. The notion that we can divorce ourselves from that is just not realistic and reasonable. And so we need to be connected to global supply chains to make our businesses competitive. And we can't hurt our consumers with higher prices in this recovery. Stefan, help me out. We're talking with the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade uh, at the Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. He's managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors. We cannot turn that back, globalization. Right. This is the way it is. And by the way, those steel jobs are not coming back, um, no matter what we do with tariffs. And they're not coming back because of technology and innovation, which has fundamentally changed the way we manufacture all goods, including steel. And so that is just a fact of life. And that, and that has been more responsible than trade for um, uh, those job losses. What do you think about, though, IP protection and Chinese investors having access to buy into or Chinese money getting to buy U.S. companies? The big problem. We've got to fix it and we've got to be more more aggressive and good for the administration to focus on it. The question is, are these tariffs the way to do it? And I'm highly skeptical that's going to be the case. History has been clear about the way um, the Chinese um, would respond to this, which is going to be measured and thoughtful, um, but is going to be firm. And they are not going to be bullied by us. And so as a result, fundamentally, I think this is going to be just tit for tat ping pong. Do you understand how this is playing? And I understand this is an administration that often comes out and says something, and then the next day or in the White House press office, something else comes out differently. Is there any clarity about what's going to happen here between well, the U.S. Certainly, and China? Certainly, I don't have it. Um, your but, question is, do you think well, they have from it? Your, yeah. From I mean, your and view. I'm not sure they have it. What the market, I think, is telling you is they don't. Yeah. And that has, in part, been responsible for the wild swings we've seen in the equity market and the volatility um, that we haven't experienced over some period of time. Bottom line, U.S. and China have to have a relationship, but the U.S. has to be smart about it, just quickly. Yeah, we have to be s smart about it, but we are playing it from a position of strength. Um, you know, to me, this is a chess game, not a checkers game. We are playing white, and they need to respond. Loved having you here. Stefan Selig, Managing Partner at Bridge Park Advisors, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, 
well, some investors want to get away from their holdings in Boeing. Boeing shares uh, a little bit lower, down about 2%, kind of in the firing line of China's escalating trade war with uh, President Trump. It is the biggest U.S. exporter, of course, Boeing. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the possible consequences of a possible trade war. Julie Johnson is aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us from our Chicago bureau. Julie, good to have you here. You know all things Boeing. Stock is down Tell us why, especially since it feels like maybe the U.S. might be backpedaling when it comes to any kind of uh, trade war with China. There's still a lot to be known and ultimately done. But nonetheless, it's playing out in Boeing shares today. Yes, absolutely. And funny that you should should use the phrase firing line. Um, you know, Boeing's a natural target um, in any sort of trade tension because they're the largest U.S. exporter. Um, and just sort of adding to the, the concerns here and the tension, uh, China is by far Boeing's largest international customer. In fact, China in the very near future is going to be the largest uh, aircraft market in the world. I think well, right now. Well, having said that, right? Yeah, it's a huge yeah. market. Can they get everything they want from Airbus? Do they want to get everything they need from Airbus if it's not Boeing? Or do they need to have two big suppliers? Because, right, that leads to competing on prices and getting different kinds of planes for their needs. Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, China has been very careful um, over the, you know, the past uh, 20 years or so to, to order um, very evenly, you know, keep keep their order book balanced between Boeing and Airbus. And, and um, and so they need that leverage. You know, they need they need Boeing, um, and the the fact is that both Boeing and, and Airbus are basically sold out of the single aisle planes that are most in demand through 2022 or 23. Hmm. So it's not like China could just turn off the Boeing deliveries and you know cancel them and go to Airbus tomorrow. They would also be doing. Um, considerable damage to their state-owned airlines. Um, so, so it's it's interesting. And um, and if you'll notice, Boeing shares were were really down a lot early in the day. I think more than five percent, and they've come back. And I think in part that's because investors are are starting to read the fine print, and the Chinese sort of with surgical precision have crafted these proposed tariffs to target a Boeing 737 model that is right at the end of its production life and exempt the new planes that that their airlines desperately need to grow. I feel like sometimes we're being played. <laughs> thank God, no, thank God for you guys understanding really the markets well and being able to dig down and say, "Well, wait a minute," because it right because it says, "Well, that really won't have as big consequences as one might think," at least initially on a headline. You know exactly, and I think it's a very, very, very deft way to send a message. Um, you know, we are we're looking at this very closely. If push comes to shove, we will take action. Um, you know, it, it's just a nice little reminder uh, to the U.S. that, you know, one of its industrial jewels um, would face potential dire consequences. Tell me a little bit, too, about um, – I just had a conversation with a former undersecretary at Commerce who was – 
has spent a lot of time uh, during his tenure with the Obama administration in China at the trade tables, you know, understanding the market. Um, And we talked about you know, China's plans to dominate a lot of markets and certainly provide what their domestic home market needs. China's also working to develop, right, a plane maker. Where is that? Right now, it's very early days. Uh, The plane maker is Comac, and they do have um, an aircraft that uh, the C, it's called the C-919, and it's just going through flight testing. It's sort of years behind schedule. And it's not really seen as a competitive threat to Boeing and Airbus. Um, But, you know, the Chinese take a very long view of their investments. And, um, you know, and they've been buying up things like Western robotics makers. Um, They have really, you know, they're studying the art of of making aircraft. Mm -hmm. And I think over a generation, um, you know, I, I don't know of anybody who says, uh, you know that they're they're not going to be um, a big threat to the the Boeing Airbus duopoly over time. And let's not forget, as you so well put in your story about how Boeing already has uh, an overseas completion center, right? So they're shipping stuff over there and putting it all together. Just got about twenty seconds, so they've got a pretty big presence physically in China as well. Yes, they do. Though Airbus is is a bigger player, but yeah, absolutely, China's a key market for Boeing. Um, so they, you know, they'll want to make sure those relationships stay strong. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned on this one. Thanks for the context, Julie. Much appreciated. Julie Johnson is aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our bureau in Chicago. Shares of Boeing right now, they are just down about 2.3% well off their lows of the session. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Just want to recap what's uh, a big story at this hour, the headline crossing uh, the Bloomberg just moments ago. Facebook now saying up to 87 million people affected by Cambridge Analytica. This was, of course, um, a leak that initially I think the estimate was about 50 million people, but this was the amount of data that uh, Cambridge Analytica had access to in terms of specific Facebook users. I want to bring in our Emily Chang of Bloomberg Technology and Bloomberg TV with an update also on this story. So now we're getting a new number, Emily. More people at Facebook, more Facebook users affected by uh, Cambridge Analytica access. Right. So the number has gone up from 50 million to now 87 million people that they say are mostly in the United States um, whose data may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica, which, of course, as we know, was working with the Trump campaign. You know, obviously, this is more bad news. Um, Facebook in the middle of, uh, you know, perhaps the biggest controversy it has ever been in as the news piles up here. You know, we were already uh, scheduled to get on a call with Mark Zuckerberg um, about an hour and 10 minutes from now, where we uh, believe he's going to be talking more about this, about privacy policies that they have updated this morning. Um, And when it comes to these policies, they're saying, um, we're not changing anything about how your data is collected and shared, but we are telling you more about how your data is collected and shared. And the big problem is that, you know, a lot of, there seems to be a big difference between what users think they're agreeing to and what Facebook thinks users. Well, and I was trying to figure out, Emily, how to kind of read this latest headline that just crossed about more people, um, you know, basically their information being shared. Is it a case that Facebook 
doesn't have such a grasp on kind of where the data that they collect is going? Like, how do we read this? So it certainly could be that Facebook didn't have this information and has been working aggressively to collect all of the information possible about mm-hmm. what exactly went wrong when it, when it comes to Cambridge Analytica specifically. Certainly, Facebook executives could have known earlier that the number was higher, but they wanted to confirm it or they wanted to disseminate the news in a, in a more organized way. It is very unclear what Facebook knew um, and, you know, whether there's a gap in sort of when they found out and, and when they've told us. Um, there is some reporting from the New York Times that uh, the chief security officer of Facebook, Alex Stamos, um, was in disagreement with other Facebook executives about exactly how uh, Facebook used its data and how Facebook was handling user privacy. So it's possible that Facebook executives internally have not been aligned um, when it comes to these very, very important questions. Um, you know, but either way, they certainly have a lot of answers to answer to. Uh, there's a lot of um, due diligence being done now on the outside. There are lawsuits piling up from, you know, um, users, from investors. The Missouri Attorney General is asking for more information about political campaigns and political action committees, how much data they're getting from Facebook, how much Facebook is paying for that data. And the problem is that with all of these lawsuits, there are subpoenas that are demanding more information, and more information could reveal more damaging um, details about just how Facebook has you know, not only handled user privacy and user data, but monetized user right. privacy. Right. And user data. I, I feel like there's so many issues going on at this point, you know, kind of the delay in hearing from the senior people at Facebook when this first broke, you know, be it Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. And I know you're going to be talking with her tomorrow. Uh, and just, you know, whether or not they really have a good grasp, you know, on the information that they're collecting and where it ultimately lies. I mean, what do they have, uh, Emily? Is it about a billion users at this point? Over a billion users. Right. Um, And one of the most interesting things about the privacy policies that were updated this morning is that they're saying, well, also we use your information from Instagram and we use your information from Messenger. (laughs) Um, So Instagram, for example, was not mentioned in their previous privacy policies. They haven't actually been updated for the last three years. Instagram is now mentioned about 30 times in the new (laughs) privacy policies. So they say, actually, we do use your Instagram activity to recommend things to you on Facebook. And when it comes to Messenger, we scan the photos that you send on Messenger to make sure they abide by our quote-unquote community standards. Well, that sounds like Facebook is reading my messages. So it all sort of goes back to what users believe they're agreeing to and what, what Facebook is actually, you know, asking users to agree to. And, the, you know, the communication certainly hasn't been there. Right. And I think there's some, you know, there's a big debate to be had about whether checking a box and, you know, <laughs> flashing yeah. a couple of privacy pages is really enough um, to educate educate these billions of people around the world who are using Facebook about how exactly their data is going to be used down the line. Lots of questions, but I think many can agree that uh, greater transparency certainly need between us, social media platforms and the users. Emily Chang, I know you've got a busy day. Thank you so much for checking in with us. She is the co-host, forgive me, the host of Bloomberg Technology. You can catch her later on on Bloomberg Television. She'll be following this story uh, throughout the day and, of course, on Bloomberg TV. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world. It is a month.
among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today, Surfing the Debt Wave. John Gittleson is investing reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us from our bureau in Los Angeles, where a bunch of surfing does go on. John, do you surf? I do not, but I am planning on going skiing tomorrow. Okay, that's a little different. Hey, listen, how do, I love this story, how did California kind of become home to some well-known Bond Kings? Well, it was a whole combination of factors, timing and personalities, and then the location fed into it too. But uh, you had some personalities like Bill Gross, and Michael Milken, who happened to be out here for jobs, or in the case of Michael Milken, he just liked living out here. And their personalities were so strong that they sort of led the growth of this industry. It's interesting, too. I love how you talk about uh, Bill Gross in particular and how he kind of started out. And he said to his parents, right, I- I'm going to be a Bond King, basically. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. He originally in university or graduate school, he did a thesis on convertible bonds. Uh, and uh, But he really wanted to be a stockbroker. He really wanted to, he thought the stock market was what was happening and that the bond market was really boring. These guys at this insurance company, Pacific Mutual Life Insurance, gave him a job and they said, we want to try this active management of bonds and Bill Gross took to it, you know, like a frog to water or whatever terminology you want to use. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was like he really knew how to do this and figured it out very fast. And one of the interesting things too is before he went to grad school, he had uh, studied card counting and he had gone to the blackjack tables of Las Vegas, spent four months binging there using a theory developed by a guy named Edward Thorpe Mm -hmm. to sort of manage his gambling portfolio the way he later managed his bond portfolio. And he figured out, you know, how much risk do I take at this time based on the cards I'm dealt and what's left in the deck. Interesting. And and the thing is, we know PIMCO is out there, right? We talked to Bill, or we used to talk to Bill Gross when he was at PIMCO a lot. We still talk to folks at PIMCO in Newport Beach. But there are other folks out there. There's Trust Company of the West, uh, and you detail, you know, other, other companies that are out there. So it's not just one firm. I mean, it's this kind of whole community. There There is a community, and there's a certain amount of cross-fertilization, too, uh, which... The guy who's running TCW, he came from Michael Milken. Some of the guys who are running TCW's money, they came from PIMCO originally. Um, There were people that have, anyway, gone back and forth between the firms. Uh, It was a coincidence, but in 1971, PIMCO, TCW, which is trust company at the West at the Mm -hmm. time, and Western Asset Management, they all happened to be founded uh, that year. And what really helped them take off, though, was in 1974, what's called ERISA, Mm -hmm. um, Employment, Retiree, blah, 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 uh, thing (laughs) was signed into law. And basically, that encouraged, uh, well, it it forced, like, corporate pensions to go out beyond the usual trust banks. It promoted a whole sub- industry of advisors. And that gave all these firms a chance to get access to the pension money that was their original uh, source of capital that they could invest. And later they started doing mutual funds and diversifying into different clients. But really being able to get at these corporate treasuries and corporate pensions is what gave these firms a chance to get big 
bankrolls. I mean, it was huge, right? I mean, this was money that needed to be put to work. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now they actually had access to it. Arisa, blah, blah, blah. Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. It's in your story. Correct. <laughs> um, what's interesting, too, though, is when these guys initially set up on the West Coast uh, and in this area, I mean, not everybody, like the business didn't just come flooding in initially. Well, correct. I mean, you need a track record and you need somebody to nudge you out of your comfort zone if you're looking for somebody else to manage your money. Uh, what was the breakthrough for PIMCO itself was AT&T. There was a guy who, not Bill Gross, mm -hmm. but another uh, person who worked for Pacific Mutual who had a bunch of sort of networking buddies. He went to Harvard. And anyway, he persuaded AT&T to put a bit of their pension money with PIMCO. That was the pension fund seal of approval and open the gates for many other pensions to start really putting money with PIMCO. Well, I love to, you, uh, people should read this story. I'll put it out on Twitter at Carol Masser, but it's just, you know, you talk about Howard Marks, how he was, had to go to California. His boss was basically, you know, find out about these junk bonds, what they are. And that kind of sent him on his way. Well, I think it's really, Michael Milken is really a key figure out here. He still is really influential to this day, even though he hasn't yeah. been active because of legal reasons for more than a quarter century. But uh, he yeah. really, you know, created all of these instruments for multiplying capital, for fueling leverage buyouts, and right. for, you know, all of these other uh, key it. financial instruments that are out there today. We got to go. John Gittleson, thank you so much. Investing reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. John Trainer is with us once again, Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors. No, nine, excuse me, $9.1 billion in assets under management. John joining us on the phone from Bridgeport, Connecticut. John, good to have you here. Volatility can create some opportunities, and it makes some stocks a lot cheaper than they were last year, maybe a month ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. Um, have you been finding more opportunities in this volatile marketplace? Well, we are. And, and, and first of all, uh, thank you for having me back. But uh, we, we would agree. Volatility creates opportunities. But uh, what it's doing is it's, it's creating opportunities for us on the investment management side. But, you know, we're spending a lot of time with clients uh, just making sure that they understand the implications of that volatility. I think a lot of people got used to the calm markets last year, and the volatility is a little bit upsetting. So opportunities exist, but I think the nervousness is increasing. So that's, uh, you know, keeping, uh, keeping our job very interesting. Are you having to explain volatility to older investors, or are you talking about mostly a younger investor who has grown up in an environment maybe who hasn't seen so much of that? 
You know, I'll tell you, there really is no age demographic that uh, is more or less nervous. You know, it's it's more, you know, the, the newer investors, you know, they may have, uh, you know, they may be in their 50s or 60s, but they may have just inherited some money. So investing is fairly new for them, and uh, they, you know, that's where we spend a lot of time. Um, you could have somebody in their 50s and 60s that, you know, jokes about 1987 and says, this is nothing, and, uh, and it's pedal to the metal. So, the demographic doesn't matter. It's really, you know, their experience and their their the lifetime that they've had uh, in the uh, in the financial markets. But we've told them, you know, if this kind of volatility is making you nervous, get used to it because we foresee this going for uh, for quite a few uh, quite a few years ahead, actually. All right. So some of the beloved big tech names, which have really provided a lot of momentum to the equity markets over the last couple of years. Um, we've seen them pull back a little bit. Facebook among them, still up about 20% this year, but we've certainly seen it uh, dip back from its high in about mid-March. You like this, and this is, what, a stock you've been buying, a stock you're watching, what? Yeah, we, we like Facebook, and, and we like technology in general. We're, we're overweight technology in our portfolios. We're, we're, we're saying that that's where the quality earnings growth is coming from. You know, they, they're, they're selling more products. It's coming from, uh, from units. It's coming from revenues. You know, it's good, strong earnings growth, and it's global earnings growth. You know, it's coming not only from the U.S., but from the export markets. So that's one of the reasons why you're seeing tech take it on the chin here a little bit uh, with the trade tension. Uh, you're seeing P.E. multiples come back, and, and declining P.E. multiples, you could basically say, is a vote of no confidence. I mean, you, you know, don't, it's a you, vote of nervousness. You're not worried about Amazon kind of being on again, off again, on again, off again on the president's radar? You know, it's interesting. We actually discussed Amazon this morning on our uh, on our investment call, and we think uh, the president's problem with Amazon is probably more has more to do with the Washington Post than the post office. Uh, that uh, you know, perhaps the president is letting his uh, you know his his, his uh, unhappiness with the Washington Post editorial page cloud his vision on Amazon. Amazon is a great company. Amazon is doing a great job uh, for their shareholders and and for consumers and retail is moving online. Amazon is at the forefront of that. You want to own Amazon here. And I'm guessing you like also, it's not just the retail part, which is obviously a big part, but their Amazon Web Services, which is where you see, you know, kind of dramatic growth, those nicer margins. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing it up, uh, John, because we had a story about Oracle CEO Safra Katz criticizing kind of the bidding process for a huge Pentagon cloud computing contract in a private dinner that she had with President Trump uh, yesterday and complaining that it seemed designed for Amazon.com to win. This is according to people familiar with the matter. If, let's say, Amazon doesn't get that contract, maybe it goes to Oracle, who knows what. Does it? That's an important part of their growth story. Does that start to worry you at all? Well, it does because if you take a look at uh, at Amazon's profitability, almost all of their profits come from uh, Amazon Web Services. It's it's an incredibly profitable business for them. We think it's going to continue growing. You know, there could be. I I did see that same uh, story that you uh, you reported on. Right. Uh, so there could be some some short term uh, hiccups there with Amazon, but Amazon Web Services is is growing. Uh, it's it's growing very rapidly. It's a it's a it's a great service, and the cloud. Your your listeners 
should really understand what's going on uh, with cloud computing because that's what gets us excited about a lot of technology companies. What What is their cloud strategy? And Amazon, again, is leading that. And I'm just going to say, as one of seven kids, you know, I always preferred it when my parents were looking at somebody else in the family and not me. And I'm just saying, you don't want to necessarily be, even if the president maybe doesn't ultimately mean it, you don't necessarily want to be chatted about because investors do react. Well, um, I'm the oldest of five, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Microsoft is another one. So this plays into your I like big tech. But you also have got to like some of the changes that Microsoft has made over the last few years. It really has, and I'll tell you, Microsoft, uh, you know, could have been caught caught flat-footed here, mm. um, but uh, we're very impressed with the new management, um, and they have reacted very quickly. Think about the size of Microsoft and their ability to move that organization so rapidly. You know, moving their their product, the uh, uh, the distribution really of their product to the cloud. They've done a very good job there. Um, so we we like Microsoft. We own Microsoft, and uh, again, that's the kind of company that. That in a in a in a volatile market, that's the kind of company that if you're looking for something to buy, that's what we would be buying today. Yeah, their intelligent cloud business now about 27.4 billion. Uh, personal computing uh, about 39 billion. Productivity in business about 30 billion. So that cloud business uh, also showing the strongest uh, growth over the past three years. John Trainer, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors, 9.1 billion dollars in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Bridgeport. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.